Thank you so much, Pastor Kenneth. You could sense the excitement in Pastor Kenneth's voice, right? Yes? <laughs> he says yes, yes. He's so excited. He, at one point, he didn't know whether he was praying, he was leading, he was singing. And you are so excited too. You should see what's happening on the second floor with the children coming back for Children's Church for the very first time in two years. It sounds like it's alive again. So we thank God for all the things that has happened in the last two years. You'll be hearing about this in God's Word in the sermon and also as you do the Bible study from the book of Nehemiah. So Nehemiah 1 and 2, I've titled it, Rising from the Ashes. And rising from the ashes of life becomes important. I do not know whether you read the account just yesterday, I think, that firefighters here in Singapore did what? The firefighters here in Singapore, I read the headline, firefighters rescue and perform CPR on 14 cats after putting out a fire at Fajar Road flat. So I saw the headline and I was thinking, oh, what does that mean? <laughs> Did they kiss the cats? Uh, was it mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation? And so I read the article a little bit more, right? and got into, right, the fire broke out at this place at Fajar Road. The firefighters arrived, they broke through the door, they extinguished the fire with compressed air foam uh, backpacks. And then they rescued, the SCDF rescued 14 cats that were found unconscious within the unit. So how did they rescue them and how did they resuscitate them? The firefighters had been cross-trained as emergency medical technicians providing oxygen and conducted CPR on the cats. So not mouth to mouth. Not mouth to mouth. And uh, almost all the cats got revived, except for one. And so we rejoice with that. How do you rise from the ashes in such a place, in such a thing, such an incident? The right training, the right time. The right training, the right time. They rose from near death. We, have, we run the prison ministry here. And by God's grace, it's been used by God over the years to go in and share the gospel and save lives of men, women who have sadly embarked on a life of crime. White-collar crime, blue-collar crime, it's still crime in the eyes of the law. Did you watch the Channel News Asia uh, focus on this? The Channel News Asia focus on this, inside maximum prison. Of course, the focus was on the prisoners. You and me have not been there. I've been there a few times, but not, not maximum. And part of the team very early on, that's how we, we got started. And then as this was coming on, Jeff and the team here said, call as many of us as leaders, contacted as many of us, send a message, please watch this, please watch this. Gives you an, a deep insight on what's happening. But it just wasn't an insight of the prisoners in maximum security. But the producers of this documentary the director of this documentary, the, the cameraman, everybody who was, were all affected by what? Because they'd never been behind the scenes to see the 24-7 of a prisoner in maximum security, right? How tough it was for them to be given a new life. How tough it was for them to rise from the ashes. How tough it was for them to be rehabilitated and then they zoom in and different things. You must go back and watch this. Everything they have in that prison cell, in that prison block, right? You could 
hide paper clips, you could hide little gadgets, you could hide paper, and any of these, these things could be weaponized. And so total body searches, etc. And you ask yourself, and you listen to the interviews of them, many of them, if not all of them, are repeat offenders. And you ask yourself, if you've been in once, three years of this, five years of this, surely you say to yourself, never again. Never again I'm going to repeat this. And so, how do they rise from their ashes? For many of them, they don't. For many of them, it's just repeat all the years. And we ask whether they will rise from the ashes, when they will rise from the ashes, what they need to do, and where will this happen, and how will they arise? Then you think about it. Hey, those are prisoners. But we are prisoners who are walking free. Because the Bible tells us we're all prisoners to sin. Do you know that? Except that your sin and my sin, your crime and my crime, is not detectable and it's not punishable under the law. And what does the Bible call sin? It's what Jesus calls sin in the book that we just read, Mark chapter 7. Out of a man's heart comes all kinds of evil. And if the law of the land punished us for all the lists of sins that were there, there will be no prison big enough. All of us are prisoners to sin. And you read the Bible with some care, all of us are prisoners to Satan. It's not something you like to hear. It's not something you like to hear as a banker, as an engineer, as a doctor. I'm so accomplished, but you are a slave to sin. You are hoodwinked by Satan. And you need to ask yourself somewhere along the line, how are you going to get out from this prison of sin? Surely you will reach moments in which you are so desperate because of the repetitiveness, the recurrence, and the depth of your addiction to that sin of anger, of slander, of malice, of porn, of anything. You must ask yourself, how long, how can I get out of this? The book of Nehemiah is about rising from the ashes. But there's a very big twist here. What will bring them out of the ashes from their exile to return to Jerusalem, the city of God? It's not what, it's not where, it's not how. The whole focus of their rising from the ashes, from spiritual and moral corruption, from their addiction to rebellion against God, is who will make them rise from the ashes. The ashes of rebellion is not focused on the weather, is not focused on the what, is not focused on the when, is not focused on the where, is not focused on the how. It's who can and will redeem us and give us a new beginning. And so the backdrop is very important. Israel in the north, Judah in the south, they split into two nations, fought a civil war that totally dishonoured God, but God had predicted it because of David's sin. And it split, right? And what they, they, they were sent into exile for what? They were sent into exile for being covenant breakers. God made a covenant of love between, you know, it's very, as I mentioned covenant today, it, it just, uh, how many of you use the word the last seven days, covenant? Unless you're getting married, lah, or you're renewing your vows. Very seldom. Our modern day word is contract. But a contract is an underwhelming translation of covenant. Covenant is very simple. God 
has chosen Israel, the Israelites, and he has chosen to love them to the exclusion of all other nations. And from this one nation, not that they are better, he will work his plan of redemption. He will work his plan of salvation. So God moves towards them as the first mover. And Israel, beginning with Abraham, whom God called, and then Moses, who led them out of Egypt, and then David and Solomon, who built the kingdom, and then how they fell with kings that turn. Israel never repaid God for what? Never responded to God as a faithful covenant partner. Never. Right? And so Israel loved God with all her heart and mind and soul and loved many other idols along the way. She had no loving of Yahweh to the exclusion of all others. All those who are dating seriously and all those who are married, you must know the seriousness of loving your God-given spouse to the exclusion of all others. You don't get that right, you shouldn't get married if you're dating. You must get that right. And if I'm going to say the vows here, I'm going to love, for me, I'm going to love Mona to the exclusion of all other women in my life. No matter how old she gets, sorry, how wrinkly she gets, how overweight she gets, how skinny she gets, I'm going to love her as my covenant partner to the exclusion of other, all other women. And that's vitally important. No matter how attractive other women are, no matter how disappointed I am, and that's the backdrop to understanding this. And so they broke God's law, they broke the covenant, and God took them to ashes, uh, took them to exile. And so we pick up the story here. They are now coming back from exile. And coming back from exile, and it begins this way. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaleo, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was still in the city of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. And so, it's about 446 BC. Can you mentally picture that? 400 over years before the coming of Jesus. That's 2,500 years ago this happened. It's about the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' rule, 20th year. The exiles had first returned, and it was now 13 years since the first batch came back under Ezra to Jerusalem. But the events that are recorded here in Nehemiah 1 and 2 most likely happened November, December 446 BC. Chapter 1. Chapter 2 is probably four months after that, they, they uh, make an educated guess when he finally approaches the king that we read about. Susa is the capital. Hanani is either a real brother or a kinsman. And whatever we do not know about him, brother or kinsman, he is trusted enough by Nehemiah in chapter 7, verse 2. But the most important thing to note are the last parts of this verse. His number one question was about the Jewish remnant that has survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. Right. And so, what was the thing that mattered to them? When I heard these things, I sat down and I wept. 
For some days I mourned and I fasted and I prayed. Before who? He calls God the God of heaven. Before he calls God the God of Israel. Which tells you that the God of Israel, when an Israelite says that God is the God of heaven, you know what he's actually saying? It's a very evangelistic statement. It's a very big apologetic statement, not apologizing, but defending of God. The God that Israel's worship is not a local deity. He's not a God of the construction site. He's not a God of this particular hawker center. He's not a God of this shopping mall that we have here a lot in Asia and Southeast Asia. He's not a local deity. He is the true and living God. He's the God of heaven. Then I said, Lord, now the name of God is given, Yahweh, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who does what? Now the God of heaven zooms down to his covenant love to those who love him. This love is mutual. It's never one-sided. It must be reciprocated. It must be responded to and keeps his commandment. And so, as you look at this, important for us to draw the main themes. The remnant that came back was in great trouble and disgrace. The walls of Jerusalem were now broken and burned with fire. Have you ever seen a place like that? You come back to your home and it's been ravaged by fire. A very frightening thing to come back to. And it's most likely in reference not to King Nebuchadnezzar, who came in and conquered and sacked Jerusalem. That was in 587. 587, just in case you're getting lost, 587 minus 445, 587, 445. Can you calculate or not? More than 100 years ago. What he was referring to, Jerusalem in ruins, the walls not completed, was most likely to Ezra chapter 4, verse 7 to 23. And the attempts to rebuild the wall was exposed, and then it was King Artaxerxes, most likely, who stopped the rebuilding of this wall. Because if you rebuild the wall, patriotism comes into your heart. We did it. We are back in our own land. A lot of things may happen. And so this is a heartbreaking response. As he hears this heartbreaking, no, a heartbreaking report, I want to ask you, when was the last time and what would you consider heartbreaking as Singaporeans? Those who are watching from overseas, I do not know what country, but each country and culture have things that will break their heart. Here in Singapore, mainly in Asian culture, right? what will break your, our hearts is when a child comes back from the exams and they don't get through. It's, it's what we call, it's the end of the world. Right? For some of you listening to this who are from overseas, right? America or Canada, if you don't get into a sporting team, it's the end of the world. What will break your heart and make you weep? There's a great insight to Nehemiah's heart. And so he heard this. His focus, look at him. He sat down, he wept, he mourned, I'm fasted, and he prayed. And then his focus is all on God and his covenant love and his commandments. Hey, did you come to our English Presbytery, what we call the Holy Week Convention? Did you or not? I'm just testing. I'm smiling at you. But the other pastors are taking notes of all those who didn't turn up. We have CC cam CCTV cameras here. If you did turn up, one of the major things from Mark 14 to 16, the last days of Jesus' life, 
was his Garden of Gethsemane prayer. He watched and he prayed. And we said Gethsemane must precede Calvary. Jesus would never have faced the horrors of Calvary if he had not prayed. Hey, what do you see here? This man is doing the same thing. This man is doing the same thing. He's a model of watch and pray. And what is he transacting? When you pray, you're actually transacting your heart with God's heart. His exclusive covenant love for you. He's not tr transacting grades. He's not transacting work. He's not transacting... And how long does he labour about this? Day and night, he's praying about this. And then if you read the passage as we read earlier, he confesses his own sin, which tells you this is vitally important if you think you know the true and the living God. You can never approach the holy God without firstly downloading sin because sin stands in the way between us, us and God. So somebody asked on Wednesday night last week, Holy Week uh, convention, why are Christians so the only people so preoccupied with this word and concept called sin? That's the answer. We should be serious about sin because it stands between me and God. And until it is removed, you have no chance of being acceptable to God. And as you listen to the prayer of Nehemiah, he prays and he confesses his sin. Then he prays and confesses their national sin. And here's the danger, right? What led Israel into the exile? If you go and study the 8th century prophets who prophesied that Israel and Judah will fall, all the prophets who came, they either ignored or they killed. Then 100 or 200 years later, they got sacked. The whole city got ransacked. What's happening in Ukraine, right, when you see images of war, is what happened to Israel and Judah in their history. 722, 587. So there is danger. And what is the danger? As we are first introduced in Nehemiah, here is the fatal danger of what? Here's the fatal danger of spiritual amnesia for Israel, forgetting God, forsaking God without any sense of accountability, without any sense of risk or danger, that I'm, I'm still going to the temple, but I'm still double-timing with the bales of this, of this world, with the many idols of Canaan. So you have the danger of spiritual attention deficit. I want to ask of you, is that you? For an hour, you could sit here and you're quite focused. Or maybe not, you could have dozed off by now. Awake, arise, O sinner. <laughs> and that's what Ephesians says, arise, O sinner. The light of Christ has shone upon you. When you let down your guard, you can suffer attention deficit with anything else. But you do not suffer attention deficit with God and His law and His word which is good for your soul and good for you and good for your wife and good for your husband and good for your children. So you see in Nehemiah, what kind of man? A man who watched and prayed on behalf of his nation. Sounds so similar to the Lord Jesus, right? All faithful ones of God 
have this spiritual habit. I just want to challenge you on that. Two years of this pandemic is a lot of time to get your life in order. Do you need God to give you another pandemic with Omicron XO or what, whatever is coming? Right? Is it Omicron XO? Or Omicron BAAB, whatever comes? If you didn't learn the lessons. And so prayer is not a place to be good. To pretend to be good and all things are okay in your life. Prayer is a place to be honest. A place to be honest with God and honest with yourself and your struggles and your sins and your weaknesses and your compromises. And prayer is a place to be honest about the sins of others. It's a very good thing that we know about prayer. And so when you pray, you don't go before God to present an image that all I need is you give me this job, you give me that promotion, you give me this thing. It's not a place for you to simply put your life in order. It's to tell God first that your life is in disorder. So somebody said, you have to be lost to be found. That's very true, don't you think? You firstly have to be so thoroughly lost spiritually in life before you realize you desperately need to be found by God. Israel needed to learn that lesson. That's why God took her into exile. And the only one who is recognizing this at this moment is Nehemiah. Did you notice? Did you notice? Why watch and pray? You watch and pray for increasing spiritual sensitivity to what? The more you pray, the more you watch God, Satan, sin, the world, the more you can see God's sovereignty in the world. Why we were punished with the exile. You don't watch and pray, you sit there, right, spiritually blind as an Israelite. Why is he such a cruel God? Why did he come to destroy us? Prophet after prophet after prophet had been sent by God. Oh, awake, O Israel. Awake to your spiritual morass. Awake to your spiritual decay. Awake when you charge. Awake when there are such rich Jews and such poor Jews. Awake when you don't look after the fatherless, the orphans and the widows. Awake when you look, don't look after the foreigners who come into... Awake! These are all the things God told you. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul. And you didn't do. So when we watch and pray, there is growing spiritual sensitivity to God's sovereignty working in the nations. The rise and fall of kings. And then you see how God is working in human history to weave his story of salvation. So, is this a war between Russia and Ukraine? Or after this, is it a greater war between America and China? If you read the news with some care and listen to our own Prime Minister, his diagnosis after meeting President Biden was, it was wrong, it is wrong to frame this war as a war between autocracies and democracies. Because if you frame it as such, you trap China. You will align China with Russia. But if you reframe this and say the problem is, it's not about 
autocracies versus democracies. So all those who stand with Russia are autocracies. But you frame it as sovereignty. One nation has infringed on the sovereignty of the other. Then China can stand with you in the West. Do you read such things? They are very important, no? For us as God's people. The more you watch and pray, because the greatest danger that the world is going to face in the 21st century is a possible blow-up between the US and China. But in all of this, God is orchestrating human history into a story of salvation, personally into your life. We must watch and pray. And then as you read this, we find him in chapter 1, verse 11, a crowning verse before this portion finishes. Lord, it's all figurative. Let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant. Notice, God, be attentive to my prayer, singular, and to the prayer of your servants, plural. Me and the servants, and we are distinctive from the rest of Israel. Not all Israel should call themselves Israel, who delight in revering your name. Not all Israel loves God. Not all Israel keeps the commandments. Not all Israel revere, in, revere God's name. I pray and hope that all who sit here love God. All who sit here after walking away from this service will delight in God's word. And we've got to make sure of that. And here is the word you must notice in verse 11. Give your servant success today. He's just prayed a macro thing, God of heaven, then the Lord of Israel and Judah, but give your servant singular himself today by granting him favour in the presence of this man. So the prayer goes from cosmic heaven to Israel and now down to him. And so what do you see in Nehemiah? How does he watch and pray? He prayed until it was time to act. Most of us are, we act and then it's time to pray. We act first, we decide first, then Lord, I'm in trouble. Lord, open the door. Lord, close the door. Lord, help. He prayed until it was time to act. And the word for timing is today. I have moaned, I have fasted, I have prayed. And so we see in him, what do we see? And then finally in verse Chapter 1, the final thing in verse chapter 1 is this. I was cupbearer to the king. Do you notice how this writer writes this book and introduces you to Nehemiah? He introduces you to Nehemiah, his heart for God. He introduces Nehemiah, the prayer. He introduces Nehemiah, the confessor of his own sin, the intercessor for his nation's sins. And then only after he introduces all the spiritual credentials or resume of Nehemiah, then he introduces you to Nehemiah's job. Please note the importance of this. When God looks at us, that's the first thing he's going for. Whether your heart is for him, whether you are a covenant person and you express that covenant love by praying to him, watching and praying of the national matters and the small matters, whether you confess your sin. And so what's so important about being cup-bearer? And now it shows up. 
I took the wine and I gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This cannot be, this can be nothing but sadness of heart. And so what's the job of a cupbearer? You've studied this in your Bible study groups, you know this. The cupbearer, you are like the private secretary, personal secretary to the king. You will taste the wine before you serve it to the king, not simply for the quality of the wine or whether the wine is an assassination plot. An assassination was the most common way to get rid of kings in the ancient world. Right? So he is the most trusted person. A cupbearer knows one thing from all his professional training. No matter how you feel, right? You, you're not feeling well this morning, you walk on the wrong side, you quarrel with the husband or you quarrel with your wife, something went wrong at home. When you are in the king's presence, you never show your sad. Because if you ever show your sad, in some way he look, looks at your facial language and the body language, he looks sad. The king's first conclusion and main conclusion, together with all his right-hand men, is this guy is plotting against me. Kill him. And so it's vitally important that we get right. I was very much afraid. But I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad? That's quite bold, right? He not just looks sad, and now he's daring to explain to the king. When the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire. So what, what city is he referring to? Of course, Jerusalem. But when he makes the first request to the king as cupbearer, he doesn't name Jerusalem because it was Artaxerxes who put down and burned down that first rebe re rebuilding. So if he's wise enough not to do this, the king said to me, what is it you want? Have you ever been in the, in the presence of a royalty or a prime minister or a rich businessman like Bezos or you know, Microsoft, Bill Gates, or, or Warren Buffett, and they ask you, what is it you want? Just name it. Have you ever? He's now face to face with the king, the most powerful king of the world at that time. And so he asks of the king, no friends, you must notice the bold words. And this is where we get our theology of the necessity of arrow prayers. He's face to face with the king. The king wants to find out why he's sad. He prays an arrow prayer to God. And then he answers the king. There is a place for arrow prayers. Amen? But if you are not watching in prayer throughout your life, at that moment, you won't shoot up an arrow prayer. You won't. Right? So have you done arrow prayers? Sure, a lot. I remember the early days here. I used to preach at Prince of Street, our founding church, then uh, run the services here in the evening, then go down to Woodlands, right? We were three places in the early 1990s. And then the service here, when we started the Adam Road service, was an evening service. And by God's grace, I've been invited to preach at Holy Light Church in Johor Bahru. So the service there begins, I think, at 7 p.m. Somebody had put me in touch with the church. And so I had to end the service, then jump into the car and drive within speed limits. Drive. I was going to say drive like a madman, drive within speed limits, right. to the causeway. And then as I got to the causeway, I realized I forgot to pump petrol. Right. 
the three-quarter mark. <laughs> and you had so... There was a traffic jam going in the causeway, right? So what can I tell? What can I tell the officer if he comes and check my thing? And in those days, they were quite strict, right? Quite strict. So I rehearsed various things. And Mona said, you can only tell him the truth, right? I said, what's the truth? You're going to preach at the church there, lah. Right? You're so busy, you didn't look at a petrol cage. So, <laughs> went up there, officer came out, one, one fellow do the passport, one fellow came to check the thing. So I, I said, uh, I'm a pastor, I just finished uh, preaching. Uh, 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 before I could finish, say, go. What do you call that? That's the first time I experienced grace in Singapore. <laughs> grace from a civil servant, that's amazing. We were praying arrow prayers like anything. When you meet an immigration officer, right? I don't know, but your heartbeat goes, is something wrong with my passport? Is something wrong here? Is something wrong? Am I going to get in, get out? And if I don't go, they don't have a church service. Arrow prayers. Here is Nehemiah and his arrow prayer. He does this right, he lives. He does this wrong, he dies. Not many of us have been caught in that situation. He's so close to the king and yet at the same time so close to death. He's so close to power, but so close to being disempowered. In a split second, that could happen if he framed his conversation wrongly. So more insights of Nehemiah, his whole attitude of watch and pray, his heart is for God, his courage to ask the king, his wisdom, he begins with, if it pleases the king, he's king-centred first before he's self-centered with his sorrow and his people. He's focused on the king first. And his practical godliness, he then asks, I need a letter. If you say less, yes, king, I need a letter, right, for safe passage. I need a letter to get the best timber for this rebuilding. I need resources. And I need protection, a military convoy. For when I march into Jerusalem, right, the people who are there would think that your decree or edict still stands, that you don't want this to be built. But if I march in, if I ride in with a military entourage, they will say, he has the patronage of the king. So what do you see in Nehemiah? Again and again, you mustn't miss this. An increasing spiritual sensitivity to God's sovereignty and the message of this book, Nehemiah, for 13 chapters, God is going to work through one man to reverse the whole history of Judah. God turning the whole fortunes of the whole nation through one man. Then God is going to work through kings, King Artaxerxes, the most powerful king. And then you're going to meet Sanballat and Tobiah and more of them later. But for them, for, for us now, enough for us to say, that these two will be the consistent enemies, opposers to Nehemiah and how God is going to bring, about, bring this about. So this is how God will cause them to arise from the ashes. And how will God do this? You find the repetition in chapter 1, you find the repetition in chapter 2. God's hand was upon me. God's hand was upon us. It is God and His faithfulness. If God wasn't a covenant keeper, a promise keeper, Nehemiah will be finished. He has no chance at this. And we read this book with some care, 
Take a look at chapter 2. Chapter 2 begins with who? Chapter 2 begins with King Artaxerxes, firmly in power, firmly enthroned. Did you notice how chapter 2 ends? Chapter 2 ends with this. I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start the rebuilding. But as for you, Sanballat and Tobiah, you will have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. It begins with King Artaxerxes in place. It ends with God in place. That's why he's so confident. So the main message of Nehemiah is this. It's about the return from exile. It is. It's about the rebuilding of the wall and Jerusalem. It is. But its main message is the reviving and restoration of the worship of God. To read Nehemiah and think is about the return, to think is about rebuilding of the wall, and to miss that it is God calling His people to the exclusive love for Him is to miss it all together. So isn't it interesting that the government has just announced the most massive relaxation of things? And so you ask yourself, it looks like it's the end of pandemic. If the end of pandemic is the beginning of what? You want to turn to your neighbour and ask them that very important question? Is the end of pandemic is the beginning of what? And the two of you may be wondering, actually, you never thought about it. Huh? Except instead of staycation, now vacation. Huh? Is that God's whole purpose in ordaining this? That everything has come from His hand, which includes the pestilence and the plagues and the... Is the end of the pandemic. And I want to say to you, it, it is God disrupting our, the bad habits and accelerating the godliness. And so our new normal is to revive the worship of God. And in God's timing, He's always orchestrating things for the worship of God. We started praying and planning for the Gettys to come. I've been courting them for many, many years. They say, we are now ready to come. So I said, it, it's okay, but we're still sitting five packs in church. We're still s you know, not allowed to sing. We're, we're still so tight. And if we do book out a concert hall, right, it's a, a thousand packs. And then as we made the decisions and said the yes, came the better news. Now we can sing with masks. Then it's not a thousand packs. You can 75%. And just on Friday or just on Saturday, it's now 100%. Who could have orchestrated that? And so I want to highly encourage you that this is the hand of God upon us. That people now are, see, you drag your feet, but you were forced by God's sovereignty. All of a sudden, home-based learning. Overnight, work from home, right? It took a lot. People had to adjust. The students, the teachers, right, had to adjust so much work. Now our difficulty is how to get you out from work from home. Right? I think one of the big companies, I don't know, Amazon or Google or Microsoft, has mandated that all these workers go back. They are facing possible lawsuits. I mean, previously didn't want. So we are creatures of habit. But our habits are habits of what kind of habits? Godly habits, ungodly habits. We need to capture the beauty of worshipping together. Wasn't today good? Yes! At least one couple is clapping. I paid them before they came in. 
Of course not. Right? You, you can't sit and worship God in a screen for the rest of your life. That's not the way He wired us. You can read study after study. When you do life by virtuality, it affects you mentally, affects you relationally, it affects you socially, and finally it affects you physically. That's not the way God created us. And then He didn't give Adam and Eve a gadget. Talk to me. He spoke to him in the Garden of Eden. So I want to challenge you. It's so encouraged by the number of ARPC folk who have... But now I give you a mandate, a challenge, right? Every single one of you who is an ARPC member or regular, can you send this thing off to five other people, right, outside of ARPC to pray and invite them to this? And we'll get a feel, every good service where songs are sung to God is a small picture of Revelation, Revelation 5. All the nations gathered and bowed down before the throne of God and the throne of the Lamb of God, praising God. Praising God doesn't just mean singing. It's always speaking in favour of God, always glorifying God, which includes singing. That's why Christian singing is so vital for our spiritual health. In the early briefings that we had with MCCY, the shock to us was when they told us, no more singing. Every single pastor that was gathered there sits at two meters from each other. I don't know, we were just sick so far, breathed by the minister. No singing. <sighs> Hush across the room. Singing has been the fabric of our praise of God. And so they're coming, God's timing. You're not going for one night of entertainment, you're going for one night of worshiping God and spreading the message and telling people. Enough of fear, come back and worship together. So you think you can do that? Immediately after service, you press the forward button to everybody, right? I'm not asking you to buy tickets for them, but if you have some extra cash, you can, right? This is how we bring people to Christ. This is how we encourage one another, right? So we pray to see that hall fill. And so Christ's watch and pray is finished, we said, but our watch and pray has begun. And it's so important that we do this. We decided as the leadership, and some of our elders and pastors and deacons are here, many churches have resumed their children's church, you know. We are one of the last to resume children's church. You know why? Because not as a boast, but a reminder to you of our reality. If a church resumes its children's church, there are maybe 50 kids there. There are 80 kids. If we resume children's church, there are 600 children who come back. And 600 children, if they have to sit in 10 packs, then we can't cope. And so, but we decided we would resume Children's Church April 23rd, 24th. And guess what? The government just announced no more 10 packs. What do you call that? The leaders of ARPC are very prophetic. <laughs> Somebody sent me that, a fellow pastor. You have inside word, is it? You didn't share with us, huh? You could invite the Gettys beforehand. You plan your, your children's church to open up just at the right time. You must have some inside word. I said, no. <laughs> we just watch and pray. Sometimes we get it right. Sometimes we get it wrong. And this is all happening. God weaving things together. You see how happy the children are downstairs? They are. And it's so important that we get this right. And you need to ask yourself, what is God disrupting in your life? 
What's he accelerating? We have said this many times, God is disrupting our pride. Our pride that we could run this world just with mind and machine, we will control everything, but we can't control unseen viruses. God is disrupting our self-redemption, our nominalism, our dangerous routine. So everything became nominal, and then COVID hit, you had to decide, am I going to be serious about God worshipping at home, worshipping together? I'm going to be serious about churching at home and churching together. Am I going to be serious about singing praises to God as families or singing praises in church? And from this point onwards, the two things must go together. Vitally important that we get this right. right? So what is God accelerating? He's accelerating our humility, our dying to self, our hunger for holiness and becoming more. And so Pastor Kenneth prayed for their two weddings. I conducted one this morning, we'll conduct one tomorrow evening. And just one wedding. Let me get my notes right. And after the wedding, I speak to so many people. So I stand there after the preaching and the, after the sermon, the solemnization, and a Eurasian man comes up to me. He's older, I don't know, in his 70s or so. I, I'm, I'm so-and-so. I'm here. I said, what, are you related? Said, no, no. I was his Sunday school teacher. I was the bridegroom Sunday school teacher. And to see him grow up like that, all Sunday school teachers take heart. Right? Take heart. One day, the children that you teach will invite you to their wedding. <laughs> then you know how old you are. I mean, how, how, how uh, much they have grown, not how old you are. And so he was so excited about this. So excited that even though he has come from his church to worship here, he just wanted to take a photo and remember this. And then another person came up. And what was the story they shared? Right? The story they shared is, Hey, you know how we came to ARPC? We're now worshipping at Bishan. Because you went to speak in London at the OCF. Then our son said, Hey, Dad and Mom, you're looking for a church, right? This one's not bad, lah. go and check it out. So they came. I just want to thank you that, right? And son's going to come back. How would you know that you send your son overseas, you meet a Singaporean pastor there, then he, he, the son tells you, go to his church. Because parents were drifting. Only God can connect those dot points. Then up came a third man, right? And um, I've got so many stories here. <laughs> okay, and he said, this is not the first time I've heard you, you know? I actually first met you at a funeral. And he named the person, and I was trying to guess, Ooh, who's this, who's this, who's this, right? Because 60 funerals a year, not, not easy to remember. Then he explained it more, then I remembered, okay? This person passed away, he's not from your church. But uh, somebody who comes to your church regularly, Asked for help because they didn't know of any pastors to help. We said yes straight away. We got the news by late evening and by night at 8 p.m. at conduct the wake. And he says, I was amazed because you and the team came down and you produced the, the funeral bulletin with the photo and the obituary. How, how could you do that? You prepared this in advance. Ah? <laughs> no. Ah. Right? We get it from you straight away. We put the thing, photocopy the machine. Yup, we exist. Funerals are time to preach the gospel. I said, that's why, you know, the things that we're doing here are good. And then I spoke to the groom of the father. I said, I've been, we've been so encouraged by what's happening here. Right? This, you, you're putting out a concert, right? This Gettys thing. I bought for my whole family already. One wedding for encouragement. Not bad, right? Must carry on doing wedding. <laughs> it's the sovereign hands of God working salvation everywhere. You do not know how this is and how he brings people to arise from ashes. 
a spiritual sensitivity to God's sovereignty at work on the macro level and in your personal lives. Everything that you thought was either routine or too small, God uses you in your workplace, God uses your children to weave it all together, to weave it all together, to bring you to Christ and find salvation in Him and Him alone. Amen. Let's rise, pray together, then we'll sing a closing song. Parents, the instruction for you, you've got children downstairs, you've been given notice where to pick up your children and where not to pick up your children. Where not to pick up your children is not go to second floor and crowd out the corridor. Okay? That's important. Right. Get the musicians ready. Let's pray together. You deserve all glory and honour and power. And all that you say to us in your word is true. The truth that exposes our heart that truth that drives us to our knees. We thank you not simply for this story about Nehemiah. It's not a man-made story. It's about you and what it means to believe in you. It's about your exclusive love for us and it is us responding to you, loving you, believing in you, to the exclusion of all others. We pray to learn the lessons of Israel, not to think that we are better, we are no better, but we thank you that you Bring us out of ashes when we watch and pray. You bring us out of ashes through one man. You bring out of ashes as you work through the kings and you bring us out of ashes in every small detail of life. And you're weaving all these things into place as we watch and pray to give our lives to Lord Jesus. So I pray for all of us that the end of this pandemic is the beginning of a truer and fuller worship of you. We pray that you disrupt the sin in our lives, the self-redemption in our life, and lead us to trust in Jesus more and more. And may we be a shining light in Singapore, in Southeast Asia, Asia, and to the world. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.